I'll do what most, a lot of pastors do. They take a watch and set it up there, and you know what that means? Nothing. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, <laughs> I do tend to ramble on, so I did write it down on just one piece of paper. When you're old, yeah, I don't know. And this, at uh, age 72 now, wow, how did that happen? <laughs> but uh, had a lot of life experiences. So uh, my testimony is not at one of drama like in, that happens to some people, had a horrible life, you know, down with drugs, alcohol, running around, never did that. Uh, you remember uh, the happy days and, and uh, Young man, that was kind of my life. I grew up during that age when, you know, in the 60s, 50s. So I grew up in a Christian home. I never knew a time when we didn't go to church. I have a faint recollection of being sprinkled in a Methodist church when I was, I don't know, must have been old enough to kind of remember it, maybe fourth grade or something, or four years old, I mean, uh, probably, but... We uh, grew up in a, a church, and the first church that I remember a whole lot of detail about was the church in Whittier, after we moved out from the town I was born in, in beautiful Bell, California. How many know where Bell, California is? Uh, no one wants to admit it. Uh, it's sub suburb of Los Angeles, east, uh, southeast L.A., uh, now a very ethnic neighborhood, and even back then it was. Uh, we had uh, Russian uh, landlords that we uh, lived on the property that they uh, owned. Uh, but uh, went to church most every Sunday, like I said. And it's interesting, one of my jobs at the church now involves counting the money. My dad did that. <laughs> and uh, they would do it after church on Sunday morning. So you'd have to wait around for a while for them to conclude that. But, uh, yeah, we, we were always at church, the very popular Sunday afternoon potluck. It seemed like they did it every week, but it might have been only monthly. It seemed like a lot, a lot of times. Um, I was a Boy Scout, of course, right? What else would a good boy do? I'd be a Boy Scout, and uh, it was through our church, sponsored it. And on a, uh, they had used to have a Boy Scout Sunday in February. And we had different evangelists come at different times. And on this one Sunday morning, uh, a, lot, a lot of the times the uh, preaching was, you know, the uh, hellfire and brimstone type of thing. You know, if you don't turn, turn from your wicked ways, you're gonna be in hell. And I, at that young age, I realized I did not want to do that. And so when the uh, uh, altar call was given, I was up there because I didn't want to suffer the consequences, you know. And as in Romans 3.23, you know, all have sinned and fall short. And the wages of sin is death. And that's, I didn't want to do that. And uh, so I... I was a pretty 
pretty good kid. Didn't cause my parents heartache. My sister did that enough. She was three and a half years older than me. So she would cause the heartache and I was the good kid. You know, so I, uh, I was, uh, you know, went to summer camp, many times church camp, like Hume, like we send our youth to, very special times, and almost every time I'd do a rededication of my life. And, but one time, uh, you know, I was, I was struggling with, you know, some sin, and I uh, was given a verse, and it's one of the easier ones to find almost in your Bible, because when you open your Bible almost in half, you come up to Psalms 119. And uh, the ninth verse was the one that uh, this fellow gave me, because I kept feeling like I'd go to camp, feel real good, and then I'd slough down and just you know, not, not do great things, not do harmful things, but did uh, just felt not good. And and this one, and Gene uh, has been a wonderful reminder of that too, but it's how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? You know, and it goes on from there, but keeping in his word. And uh, I've had a, one of my sons in particular, we, I've talked about it in the past here, that he just stopped doing that, and guess what? He just started drifting away and got into some very... Uh, lousy uh, uh, situation with his family. So, uh, you know, and, and when he asks for counsel, I give him the word. You know, I just give a suggestion because it's all there, and he knows that. You know, he grew up in this church, went to the Iwana program, was very active with the youth choir that we had, you know, and and he knows. He knows it, and it has literally been killing him when he's leading that lifestyle, and he's making a turn again right now, and uh, we can ask for prayer because he decided that part of that, to get his life turned around, he had to leave his wife. She wants to lead this very, I don't know, just horrible lifestyle. I'll just leave it there. And uh, he knows that you know he needs to get active in reading the word and attending church with you know get together with other believers but uh anyway uh, this was probably my junior year in in high school and then after my senior year I had been this of course in, we're talking about the early 60s uh, or I'm sorry the late late 60s in college I graduated from high school in 64 and the uh, height of the space race was going on. And I got accepted to Cal Poly Pomona. I kid with my daughter who went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo that that was a serious one because to live in Pomona, you got to be serious. San Luis Obispo is beautiful. We were very jealous of those people. But anyway, went, went to college there and as an aerospace engineer. And uh, I had been accepted that, and that summer before starting college, I remembered visiting with a, a cousin of mine there in Nebraska. I have uh, Nebraska roots. Both parents, both my parents were born in Nebraska. And uh, I was visiting with him. We were sitting by a lake, and, and he wouldn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I had a plan. 
I was going to go to Cal Poly, get an engineering degree. I was going to get married. I was going to go become a pilot in the Air Force. I don't know why I ever thought that would be possible. Have kids and uh, become an engineer after my flying years were over. So here's what really happened. Uh, I went in to, at Cal Poly as an aerospace engineer, and uh, it's a very difficult curriculum. Uh, we were encouraged by the uh, pending uh, military draft to finish in four years because they gave you a deferment for four years to go in education, so had to work. That meant 18 to 21 units every quarter. So didn't have a whole lot of time to do other stuff, but somehow along the way I decided to marry a, a young lady that I had met actually in a church, and uh, we got married between my junior and senior year. Got uh, hired for the summer to work for North American Aviation, which uh, I think it's now Boeing or something, I don't know. But anyway, back then North American built the space capsule for Apollo, built the Apollo capsule. And just prior to my being hired on there, they had the first Apollo disaster where it killed all the Apollo 1 astronauts in a training exercise. And they decided they needed to redesign that capsule to give them an opportunity First, not to have a pure oxygen environment. Secondly, have a door big enough to get out of in case of something like that happened. All of a sudden, it, be, it was heavier by 2,000 pounds. And, and this is a big difference in space talk. It's, instead of an 11,000-pound space capsule, it was becoming a 13,000-pound capsule. And it, uh, when you do that, anybody remember how we brought in those guys? Those parachutes, they had to obviously be redesigned and rechecked out, and that's the group I got hired on to work with. Uh, it was interesting work, but uh, as I uh, got ready to graduate then the following year, it was a wonderful program. I could work part-time during the school year, full-time during the summer, and uh, decided that I would uh, not stay on with them after I graduated. Now, the space race was going on. Aerospace engineers, we were really in demand. Uh, I had at least four, if not six, job offers, and they all talked to each other because my, my starting pay was going to be whopping $850 a month. Now, that was... That was better than if I, I looked at going in the Air Force and they were going to pay me $450 a month. So I calculated that out real quick and thought, hmm, the $850 sounded better. Uh, yeah, real, that's what rocket scientists do, you know, they really math, mathematically figure this stuff out. So anyway, I, uh, I went ahead and worked on the, uh, I switched from being on the capsule to being on the rocket that put him in orbit, the Saturn 4B stage of the uh, Apollo program, which on the smaller version, when we just did a lunar orbit, we just threw the second stage and put him into to Earth orbit, I mean. And then on the Apollo 5 ones, we'd put him into Earth orbit and then fire again to send him off to the moon. And uh, I was assigned to 
an odd number. We were each assigned a stage to be the head guy on, and mine was Apollo 13. And it, the, we only had one engine, and they burn at a certain ratio of fuel to oxygen, and it was different than every, all the other ones. Still within specifications, but just different. And at the end of any briefing that I gave, I said, well, it is Apollo 13, not knowing that it, what a predictor I was. But uh, I, I was supposed to be the head guy on that and had things not changed around a little bit. I would have been in Houston when they said they had a problem. But uh, after we got the men on the moon, uh, all of a sudden, the priority for the space program stopped. It's almost dead cold. I mean, we were supposed to launch like every three months. Apollo 13 was supposed to go at a certain time. And uh, it just slipped way out. And they started doing what has, they do in the aerospace industry a lot, have lay off people. Now, I had the unfortunate thing of not being laid off at first. Uh, a year of weekly layoffs happened before one day the secretary came out and got me to go talk to the supervisor and found out that because I was a 1A draft classification person, they would uh, lay me off instead of this fellow who's 4F that they couldn't be drafted. That was the deciding point. And I well, you know, the Lord taking care of me at this point. You know, I actually had my wife would, uh, let me know that she was pregnant with our first child. Uh, but I was laid off prior to that. A nice thing, of course, medical benefits carried over. But I needed other work. And so I went back looking for engineering jobs because aerospace engineers weren't needed anymore. And guess what? Those, those guys that got laid off for that year before me, they were doing all those other jobs. And uh, I, I said, well, I'd like to be an engineer for you, you know. And he says, we got all the engineers we need. How are your eyes? I said, what do you mean? I've never had an eye exam. I guess they're okay. He said, well, we're only taking pilots. I said, mm, okay, <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> I'll go try that out. Never, I knew what made airplanes work. I knew what lift was and drag and thrust. And so uh, I said, well, sure, why not? Of course, you have to be an officer first. So they send you down to Lackland Air Force Base and become what they call a 90-day wonder. You know, you're a sec go from civilian to uh, 90 days later, you're a, a second lieutenant. And then they send you off to a year of pilot training. And that was in Oklahoma, and I struggled because I had difficulty because I'd never flown anything. Again, I knew what made it happen, but to make it happen, actually, uh, took a lot more work. And I was coming close to washing out of the program. But a fellow in the church that I was going to, and then uh, Enid, Oklahoma, I was at Vance Air Force Base. This fellow said, well... He was an instructor, pilot out at the base, but he also had a civilian uh, instructor license, and he had a plane he could get me into, and 
he'd give me a couple extra flights and uh, got me through. I passed that, that stage just by the skin of my teeth. Then I got into the next stage and they called the T-37 jet and only that is a jet engine that's there. We doesn't give much thrust, but uh, you uh, learn how to fly with that plane. And I started doing, struggling at first, but I got through earlier. Uh, started uh, doing really well because I had an instructor that really got to me as far as getting through to me about how to make it happen. So I said that was one of the first things in my Air Force career as far as having God just really step in and give my, my friend Gary to uh, uh, give me some extra uh, instruction to get me through that. And then having a, an instructor then that really got through to me in that T-37 aircraft and then I graduate on to what's a T-38, it's a supersonic uh, jet. We did training uh, in that, and I kept getting better. I was like the bottom of the class as we started that flying school, but by the time I got into the end of the program, I was up to halfway. I was out of, of course, we actually, if you think about it, actually I was uh, only in the top 25% because our class started off with 81 students. By the time we graduated, we had 38 graduate. So, and then I was in the middle of that class. I was number 19. <laughs> and and uh, I, I uh, you know, I had, oh, by this time, number two kid came while I was also in pilot training. Uh, found, uh, found us having two kids, so my uh, request for the type of aircraft was different than a lot of the guys. I was older, you know, I had worked for two or three years, so I was older. I was like six months younger than the maximum age you could be and still go into pilot training. Um, so I, I wanted to fly the cargo jet, you know, and, and uh, by the time we got, the number one guy got his first choice. Number 19 got what was left out of that list of, of aircraft. And we had a lot of C-141s, which, I don't know, anybody know what a C-141 is in here? Oh, there we go, we got a couple, and Carl, of course. We, we crossed paths probably a few times during the Vietnam War. But anyway, uh, it's a, okay, anybody remember seeing the POWs come home from Vietnam? Anybody remember that? The guys getting off that aircraft in Hawaii? That's the aircraft I flew. Matter of fact, if it had happened two weeks earlier than that, I would have been flying that plane because I stood standby as we waited for that to, uh, to happen. We did a lot of interesting things. We did a mission where we flew around the world. I can tell you from personal experience that the Earth is round because we headed west and we ended back where we ended up never, never went east. We just kept going west. And uh, we ended up back, back at Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino. And uh, first during the Vietnam years, we did uh, our normal mission was to fly to Hawaii, then on to the Philippines or Okinawa, and then fly into Vietnam for a week or so, turn around and go back and do that, be home for a couple of weeks and go do that again. I uh, did that multiple times. I 
think I have a flight record. I should probably find out, but it's a lot. <laughs> and uh, that aircraft was a good aircraft for a guy who doesn't want to be, you know, putting his life in danger for because you have family at home. I mean, a lot of guys did, of course. But uh, uh, no 141 was ever shot down in Vietnam. Now, we were a pretty big target. And uh, I think the Lord gave me that aircraft to fly because it was going to keep me safe. Uh, but we, I have a theory of why we didn't get shot down is we didn't have any version of our aircraft that shot at them. That helped. Secondly, we were bringing cargo in, and they figured they're going to end up with it all anyway, which they did. And, uh, you know, and so they, uh, it was a good time. I ended up participating in the Vietnam evacuation. Uh, we, we had a record number of people, which we can't advertise it too much because the aircraft was supposed to carry at max 178 people. I brought a, a lot of people out of Guam to, uh, or out of Philippines to Guam, and a crew counted how many people were getting off by airplane, and I, because they wouldn't know how many we had, and I said 178. They said, no, no, how many did you really have? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, we lost count at 350. So <laughs> they're all little people. <laughs> For the most part, there's a few Americans split into that, but yeah, we, uh, you know, it just lets you know how wonderful our democracy is and how, you know, people were doing anything to get out of Vietnam. They were carrying everything on their back or in a briefcase. Uh, we had a, we have a missionary from our, our conference uh, church that may have very well been on that aircraft because he told me how he got to America and it sounded like he could have been and the only scary part about that, the way he did it, he did not have any documentation. People just knew his face as being a friendly face around, so they let him go on through. So, Lord watched over me again. You know, he had a few other incidents that happened that made me appreciate it. And landed one time, and we had a flat tire. No, no big deal. We have ten tires, you know. But we couldn't take off, of course, with uh, one flat. So guys risked their life to come up to us and bring us a, a tire, but we sat on the ground a couple hours longer, and I just sat underneath the wing of this airplane that had 100,000 pounds of fuel on it and watched mortars firing off in the distance because they wouldn't let our plane fly in when things got hazardous. But I started looking around, and there's little pop marks on the, on the runway of the tar tarmac there from previous mortar attacks. Watched you know, MASH, how they bring in the helicopter with wounded and an uh, ambulance meets them. Watch that happen right next to me. You know, I felt like I was watching a movie because earlier on, maybe three or four days earlier, I was in Hawaii on the beach at Waikiki. And, and probably a week later, I was back on that beach in Waikiki on the way home. So uh, did that, and then one other time we had a little excitement, as I tell my Iwana kids, you know, you complain about aircraft engine noise when you're on an airline flight. It's kind of noisy. Another thing you don't want to hear is nothing, no sound. <laughs> I got woken up 
With that, I was an extra co-pilot on this flight, and the plane was quiet, no engine noise, and it was doing back and forth kind of movers. We were floating, went from 37,000 feet, and recovered finally at 20,000 feet. Uh, again, the Lord just washed over it and just gave me an aircraft that was designed over spec because we had over G'd, which means port too many G's on a on an aircraft. I had, uh, they said you would never have your engines flame out by turning sideways. The engines would rip off the wing before that happened. Thank goodness again, thank the Lord that they were wrong. And, uh, you know, we had a very, even after we got all the engines running, it was very quiet. No one wanted to talk on the headsets. And I finally got on, and again, I was older than a lot of the guys. Okay, guys, what happened? <laughs> so, uh, Lord again watched over, watched over me. Um, anyway, uh, let's see, where am I now? Okay, uh, I uh, went back after the Vietnam War was over. Uh, military is not as much, I call it fun, but, uh, there's not as much action going on when you don't have a war going on or activity and uh, all they concentrate on are inspections and things are not as fun. So I uh, volunteered to become an instructor in the T-37 aircraft that I really liked the instructor, really got through to me, and I felt I could do that with other people, which I did get to do later on. Did that for uh, uh, four more years and worked, started working on a master's in business because I felt I didn't, didn't uh, fit the pilot lifestyle. Um, they're a pretty hard-living group of people. Uh, it's kind of frightening because I know that a lot of our airline pilots come from that thing and that uh, they're hard-living people. I, I'll leave it at that. Uh, just didn't fit in with that crowd. I wasn't, pilot wasn't my first thing I wanted to do in life. I wanted to be an engineer and I asked the Air Force to let me out of flying so that I could you know, be an engineer for them. I said, no, we need pilots. And I said, well, you know, I can get out. And they said, you wouldn't do that. And as a lot of us are that way, a little hardness uh, went up, well, watch me. <laughs> so I had gotten an MBA, you know, master's in business, and uh, uh, hit the, got out of the Air Force. And what, what happens, I come out, look for a job, and they're high, you see in the LA Times that they're, hiring up here at Vandenberg to, for the space shuttle program. In 1980, there was probably, I'll be conservative with this, there's probably 5,000 people hired on to work at, at the base for different contractors and things. And uh, got hired on and became a finance guy for them. Figured out what it cost to launch these rockets for space flights for the uh, Air Force. And uh, did that for 26 years. Uh, we, you know, after the first shuttle disaster happened, we, we uh, decided not to launch the shuttle from Vandenberg. We had built the pad, checked it out, got it all ready to launch a shuttle from Vandenberg. But after that, the Air Force decided they weren't going to only launch shuttles. They were gonna launch other aircraft. So I switched into the other aircraft, other 
space launch vehicles, Titan and Atlas. I did that, said 20, 26 years has ended up, because after the last Titan launch in 2005, uh, I was going to be turning 60 in, in 2006, and I needed to work a few more months than they were going to lay everybody off in January. Uh, not everybody, but a lot of people off in January. And uh, I volunteered to be laid off if I could work till April because then I'd have 60 and they had an early retirement program. Did that and retired. It's been 12 and a half years now. Wow. Time flies. But anyway, I... Uh, I got involved here at church, uh, and when I first came here, uh, a lot of people in this audience know Bill Hayden. He was the first person most people met when they came in the door. He also invited me to come ob observe the Awana program in, uh, in the third and fourth and fifth grade at that time group. And I went to work in there, and uh, through the years, uh, you know, I, so I got Mary got got here at the church, got involved, and you know one of the reasons I got out of the Air Force was to improve the family home life. Well, a year after uh, we got here, my wife had to go to work because we were uh, hurting financially, and uh, she started working for a dentist, and why does it still hurt? Uh, <laughs> Decided she wanted to be married to that dentist instead of me. Which I know why God hates divorce, because it hurts horribly. And uh, to be told that, it just you know, felt like right in the heart. And, uh, you know, I, I, she tried to work through it, but she was killing herself because she's a Christian. She knew it was wrong but she wouldn't turn from it, and it was killing her. And she talked often about suicide, and I just finally said, you know, I just got to do it because she is going to do it. She is going to kill herself. But did that, let that uh, go through. Uh, she, uh, she married him, and, you know, the, uh, very quickly after the divorce was final. And uh, I, oh boy, single guy at age, what was I then, 34? <laughs> uh, just, oh man, what do you do? Had these three kids, you know, and she was amicable about sharing custody and things. But, and I would always pick them up on Wednesday night to go to Awana because later on I, I became, I think, uh, commander of Awana. I was the last one before Randy Georgie, who's done it now for 24 years, or 34 years, 34, is that right? 20, no, 24 only. <laughs> but uh, did everything in Iwana. Uh, and at one point, going to a singles class uh, by direction of Helen Taylor, and I don't know if anybody remembers her or not, but. She was a neighbor, and she said, Mark, you need to go to the singles class. You know, you are single, you know. <laughs> okay, and uh, a young lady, young, she's a whole, whole six weeks younger than me, uh, showed up, and we became friends, and then uh, 
a year or so later, uh, got married. That was 34 years ago, this past September. We were a merged family, and we had, at that time when we got married, there was four teenagers and a seven-year-old. And uh, those were struggles to get through all that. The Lord again brought us through all that. Um, you know, we now have, I said, the combined family of the five kids, and they produced, I guess really, they produced 11 grandchildren, and then they adopted the 12th one after one of my trips to Haiti. I started doing that as urgence of Greg, who never did go with me. But um, I, uh, on the first trip there, I met a young lady who had been blind and had been sent to Miami to uh, get a cornea transplant and get her eyesight back. So she was uh, kind of a celebrity in the village and uh, met her and her little uh, runny nosed brother who I really didn't know much about him at the time and he uh, is now my 12th grandkid. Uh, my one son on, on our mission there in 2010 uh, met this young man that he had been born in Miami when his sister was having that cornea transplant done and his parents wanted him to take advantage of being an American citizen. So she wanted him to, to they wanted him to uh, get adopted. And my son spoke up and said, yes. And we'll, we, my wife and I have been wanting to do this ever since Samuel, their second child, who was born, which had been 12 years earlier. <laughs> and uh, he did that, and I just got to see uh, Jeremiah, is his name, uh, just this... Well, see, I saw him today. Yeah, I saw him uh, Saturday. That was yesterday, wasn't it? Wow. <laughs> it's a long weekend. But anyway, uh, the kids, you know, I've made six mission trips to Haiti. Our uh, previous administrator of pastors here of uh, this area had a real heart for Haiti and this village that we went to. Uh, did a lot of projects with them. Uh, you know, Greg encouraged it. Like I said, the first year was was going to be me, him, and one other fella. And the other fella's mother got sick. Greg decided to run into a car with his bike. And uh, so I went. And then uh, the next year I, I said, well, I'm not going to go because I started working part-time after I got laid off out here. I started working part-time as a consultant for a Lockheed. And uh, he... Uh, the next year, uh, Pastor Johnson wanted to bring a group from our church and really wanted me to go because I had gone before. So we went again that year. The next year was 2010, and there's going to, I, I wasn't going to go, and my son that lives in Idaho now as a nurse wanted to go. He called me up, and I told him we weren't, I wasn't going to go, and he said, oh, gosh, Dad, I really wanted to go, so I called up the conference they had happened to have two openings, and, uh, and then, of course, earthquake happened in January that year there in Haiti. Nobody went anywhere because the airports were all closed. My son, I got a call from a pastor up in Matascadero uh, uh, who's tied in with medical missions, and he had my, uh, called me up and said, your son's a nurse, isn't he? And I said, yeah. And I said, well, would he want to go? And I said, here's his phone number. He's 34 years old or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, so... Actually, I think he was 40. But anyway, he uh, he went in 10 and then went again with me in June of that year where met 
this opportunity to adopt Jeremiah. Jeremiah is thriving. He's 12 years old, five foot five and 165 pounds. He plays tackle football, of course, but uh, yeah, three kid. But anyway, uh, did that. I did six trips. Have had a, a you know, after I got uh, laid off out here on purpose. Uh, Two years later, Lockheed wanted me to go and consult with them up in Sunnyvale. Did that several times. And finally, uh, uh, you know, we uh, did really stop working and, uh, when I turned 65, I thought, because then uh, a fellow here, Jim Dubransky, who's our church accountant, was doing a job for one of his six, six sons, right? Uh, wanted me to pick up a job that he was doing, which wasn't much. It didn't take much time, and I agreed doing that. And then when he was diagnosed with cancer this last May, uh, that job opened and came here as church accountant. Kathy says, well, you've got an MBA. You could do that job. I said, that, that's okay. Uh, and somebody else volunteered to do it, and I was happy. And then a month later, that guy turned it down, and Kathy said, well, <laughs> so... I am your church accountant now. Maybe not everybody knows that, but uh, yeah, I, I've become that. And uh, you know, things never work out as I planned. I ended up doing all this stuff. I was a pilot. I was an engineer. I got married. Had a family. You know, uh, the Lord just has touched so many ways. Even in retirement, after wife retired, we uh, took a three-month trip with our fifth wheel. Went all over the country because we had kids in Oregon, Idaho, Virginia, and uh, Los Angeles, and went uh, went around with them. Had an engine blow up on. Uh, here's speak of Kathy. Here's my lovely wife, Kathy. <laughs> she wanted to come and check to see that I end up eventually here. Uh, but we've been, a, we've been doing a, a financial peace university class, and I've always had peace because I knew the Lord was in control. I didn't do things the way I should have financially, but one recommendation I would always tell people, and if, if they have my advice about how uh, to uh, take care of your finances, number one, don't get a divorce, uh, you, you know, if that's possible, because uh, not only the emotional hurt, but the financial hurt it, it puts on you. But uh, Lord, again, just brought Kathy in life, who, you know, we so it's been 34. And we had an engine blow up on the truck and said two years later we decided we would sell our house, downsize, and looking for a place to put our fifth wheel. Our neighbor, or I'm sorry, an old friend of Kathy's of over 50 years said, well, I live on a ranch, come live by us. So... And I would take care of her. Her husband died, uh, well, it's been 16 and a half years ago. So we kind of help her out, and she helps us out, letting us live there. We get live out on the ranch. Don't want to live anywhere else. We've got chickens, and it's, uh, it's fun. Lord, just, just watch over that. So, you know, he was preparing that way in ahead of, of me, because when we said we were going to live in our fifth wheel and we wanted to stay in the area, they don't have places to live here in the fifth wheel. 
So, uh, you know, he just provided that. Just uh, so many things. But I said I had a, a very full life. Got into things didn't work out like I planned. I know it's all been under God's control, and the decision I made when I was 10 to accept the gift of Christ's death on the cross for my sins, even at 10, I knew I was a sinner. You know, I accepted the gift of Romans 6.23, you know, uh, and uh, the promise in Romans 10.9. And uh, then always remember that verse in Psalm 119.9. Because he's led me to be uh, not only active as a church accountant, but also I lead a Bible study at 6.30 in the morning. Any man interested in doing that, come out. We don't have a whole lot of people. Because 6.30, Chet uh, third says that he's never been tempted to get up at that early to come to my Bible study. I stand by that. (laughs) So, anyway... uh, yeah, Lord has put that in in my heart to fill in when, when Greg had to, had to drop covering it for a while. So thank you for your patience of putting up with me, and most people have been awake. Tell them how you met. Oh, <laughs> met Kathy in class. We had a, we had a, yeah, she, she, anyway, it's a lot, long story. We don't, we don't have time for that right now. Okay. I met Kathy in the church here, and uh, and then furthered the relationship through a singles group that we met at Fayetta's house. Okay, thank you, Greg.